Long before Kevin, there was another Magnussen in Formula One. And there is Magnussen starting 12th for his first Grand Prix. That's Jan Magnussen, Kevin's father, making his F1 debut with McLaren in 1995. I remember there was such a buzz around Jan back then. On his way to F1, he'd broken racing records set by the great Ayrton Senna, and expectations were high. But his time in F1 was brief, and it was often frustrating. I don't think I understood the enormity of the task when I was in Formula One. All the success in F3 went against me in the following years. That year didn't teach me how to fight. When you reflect on your Formula One career, what would you do differently now? I've had a chance to do just that with Kevin. He's done it his way, but I feel like I've had a chance to do it again with him. Sort of watching from the side, giving him the advice that I could give him. Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Jan Magnussen's racing career is extraordinary. From his three karting world titles to his record-smashing season in British Formula 3 and class victories at Le Mans and Daytona. But his time in Formula 1 was discombobulating and brief. Why? Well, Jan's had time to think about that. And as you'll hear, he's brutally honest with himself and he's used that understanding and wisdom to help guide his son Kevin. In fact, there are many parallels between the Magnussen's racing stories. They both made their Formula One debuts with McLaren and they both made F1 history for Denmark. Jan scored the country's first world championship points, while Kevin was the first Dane to stand on the podium. They both found themselves falling out of Formula One and facing a hard choice of what to do next. And they both realised that their love for racing goes beyond Formula One to sports cars and endurance racing. They've even raced together as teammates at Le Mans, an experience that Jan talks about with so much joy, it's really lovely to hear. Jan's story is one of what might have been. Could he, if the cards had fallen differently, excelled in Formula One? I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jan, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. I love being here. Now, You've had a diverse and very successful career in motorsport with four wins at Le Mans under your belt, among many other accolades. How important is it for you to have F1 on your CV? I think that regardless what you do as a racing driver, if F1's part of it, you're in a much better position in anything else that you do. When my time in Formula One ended abruptly, leaving in the middle of a season and getting replaced and all the bad stuff, the worst thing that can happen to, <laughs> to a driver, I thought it would go against me, but uh, it has helped me. Uh, uh, having that on my, uh, on my CV, is, uh, regardless how it ended, it's still one of the biggest things I ever did. Even though the results didn't follow, it's still something I'm super proud of that I achieved making it to Formula One. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of it in a minute, but... Jackie Stewart once described you as the greatest talent since Ayrton Senna. So it's crazy to think that you scored only one world championship point in the Canadian Grand Prix 98. Why do you think it didn't work out for you in F1? It's, I think it's difficult to, to put it down to one thing. Uh, I think it was uh, a lot of different things. I don't think I uh, understood the 
the enormity of the task when I was in Formula One. I signed a four-year deal with Stuart uh, back then, and there was a kind of a clear uh, plan to follow, you know, learn Formula One, year one, year two, score some points, year three, some podiums, and year four, see if we can go for wins. That was sort of the plan at the time, and uh, I think I... I was leaning back into that too much and not knowing how cutthroat and brutal Formula One could be. I think I relied on the plan and, and trusted the plan too much uh, so that when things did started to go a little bit uh, in the wrong direction, I wasn't worried enough that this could end prematurely. I think that was that, that was the big thing. And, and, and on the back of that then comes that maybe I should have I could have done things differently. I could have demanded more attention on my car. I could have demanded more new parts or more testing. Or On top of the whole thing, we didn't have a super reliable car, so I never really got the testing mileage um, that I think I needed at the time. I was so looking forward to joining Stuart. I couldn't see anything going wrong in that scenario back then because I'd had the a fantastic year in Formula 3 and I, I thought I'll be coming home this is going to be easy for me with these guys I can be super successful it'll be just like the F3 year there was such a buzz about you coming in to F1 that, well there was a buzz about Stuart coming in in 1997 and the fact that you and Rubens Barrichello were their drivers I mean let's remind people let's Let's take a step back and remind people, Jan, how good you were. I mean, let's start with karting. Um, how much success did you have? Uh, a lot. <laughs> Three world championships, 87, 89 and 90. That's really what put me on a path to a career in motorsports. Go-kart is a place where you find your passion, I think, and where you find, you dig out the talent, see how good you are. Go-kart is, is more or less the same as, as motorsport in general, where you got to be in the right place at the right time and all that. And I, I, for sure I was. I was with the great teams, had good support around me, but this, and the success followed. It made me believe and it made me dream about much more. You then came to England and won the, the Formula Ford Festival when it was still at its peak back then. It was, it was a big deal at Brands Hatch, wasn't it? You, you won that. What did that victory do for your career? I'm sure it did something. Later on in my career, I spoke to Martin Whitmarsh, and, and he was there at that uh, race. So when I joined McLaren, he told me that he had seen me at that race and kept an eye on me after that. But it didn't, it didn't open doors. I, I still had to find money to move up, uh, which I didn't have. So I stayed with the team, Foundation Racing, uh, because of lack of funds. And it wasn't until really I met Anne Newland and, uh, and David Sears that I had the opportunity to pick and choose the right team. Before that, in Formula, even in Formula Ford and in Opel Lotus, it was, where can I f afford to be? But it wasn't until I met Anne Newland uh, and David Sears that they provided me the money or the backing that we could go for Stewart in F3. And, and my goodness, that was the right team. He did a couple of races for them in 93, yeah. got on the podium. And then, yeah. what was it, 14 wins? 14 out of 18. Out of 18, beating <laughs> yeah. Senna's record of 12. I mean, you must have thought you could walk on water at some point that year. I did. <laughs> uh, and uh, absolutely, my the, the mindset you get when you're that successful. Um, I remember it was uh, when i woke up sunday morning it was just a given for me that i would win later on today it, was, uh, I, it wasn't something that i was telling myself you know you're gonna win it was something i knew i knew 
I'm, I'm, you know, most likely I'll win. And it, but but that I had a lot of pole positions as well. I had 11 or something. But qualifying became non-important because I I knew things would work for me. I'd get through the field and I'd win. What was it about that car, that Delara Mugen Honda, yeah. that that seemed to click so well? Because you were up against some great drivers. I'm just going to list some of them now: Dario Franchitti, Mark Janet, Pedro De La Rosa. Yeah. Just the driving style. The Formula 3 car at that time uh, was quite underpowered, but with a, quite a bit of aero, and it was a difficult car to drive, but the driving style just suited me from the minute I sat in it. So the plan was back then to do two years, one year learning and then two years trying to get some success. Well, win every race in year <laughs> two, right? <laughs> but... Uh, so, so obviously, halfway through the season, knew that there, there's not going to be a year two here. I need to move on from there. But uh, no, it's just a driving style. Uh, I found it, be wrong to say, easy. But it, what I had to do was natural for me. So I didn't have to work a lot on my driving style. I had a great team behind me with uh, Andy Miller from uh, PSR and uh, Bruce Jenkins, my engineer. And, and Jackie Stewart, of course. And Jackie. But, but Jackie didn't really... Uh, I mean, I, I met him a bunch of times, met him at all the races. And we talked and he was, you know, full of praise. But he, he didn't, at that time, sort of work with me on my driving style or anything. He was being very complimentary of what I did and how I operated. Is it true that you've recently bought that actual car? Well, I actually got it back then when I did my deal for Formula One. A little bit of a weird story, but going through the contract, there was a clause in the Formula One contract saying that, uh, you know, in the event that we get any trophies, the team will keep the trophy. And I was like, hell no, if I get a trophy, it's mine. And they were like, no, nope, team gets it. And then I said, well, then I want that. And the car was there. Then you needed to give me that car. And they were like, yeah, sure, it's yours. Is it a runner? Have you got an engine in the back? No, so there's no engine. The engine, uh, so with that car came two engines. Uh, it was a testing engine and a race engine. And uh, But they were good. They were the best engines, I guess. So they were used a few years after, uh, still in F3. So I'm trying that. So I have the, the, the car, everything, minus the, the engine. So I'm looking right now to see if I can get one of those. If I can find one of those two, that would be awesome. And take it back to Alton Park in the UK and, and give it a spin. So my first win came at Donington. Kevin told me, you know, we need to get the engine and then we need to take it back to Donington and we can both drive it. So Son Kevin wants to drive your old Formula 3 car. Yes. That's brilliant. That'll be, I, I want to be there for I can't wait for that day. <laughs> Look, there's, there's two other rivals in Formula 3 that I wanted to ask you about that is relevant to Formula 1. Uh, there was one Christian Horner. Yes. He did every race. <laughs> he did that. And, and Zach Brown did a handful as well. Did you hang out with Christian? No, no. So we didn't have... Uh, you know, I hung out with uh, Dario most of the time, and uh, so I didn't really... Uh, it wasn't like we mingled or anything, but uh, yeah, I do know that, uh, that he raced that year and Zach did a couple of races. It's funny, at the Formula Ford Festival, Toto Wolf did the 92 festival as well, and he rolled it. <laughs> <laughs> he reminded him. <laughs> he reminded me okay. a couple of years ago. <laughs> you dominate the British Formula 3 championship in 94. Uh, what happens next? The uh, plan kind of followed the normal routine back then was to move up to Formula 3000. Uh, and in my contract with uh, PSR was uh, uh, that if I did 3000, I had to do it with them. Uh, so after the season had ended, I uh, started testing for PSR in Formula 3000. Uh, but uh, it was 
something wasn't off. Uh, the, the, what they had working in the Formula 3 team was definitely not working in the Formula 3000 team. They might have had, at that time already been shifting their focus a little bit to going to Formula 1. I don't, I don't know, but it didn't work out. And I knew I can't back up a fantastic season in Formula 3 with a really poor season in Formula 3000. And my manager, David Sears, had uh, Supernova. And they were the best team, so was, I thought, well, it'd be easy, easy way out of post-jude racing contract, go to Supernova and then uh, have a good shot at it from there. But they wouldn't release me. So we ended up taking, having a meeting with Ron Dennis. I'd then become a test driver for McLaren and had my first test in a Formula One car. Actually, the, we were using the post-jude F3000 cars to kind of get me ready for the F1 test. And now I was a test driver for McLaren. So how early in 1995 did this happen? Early, like maybe January of uh, 95. And there was a shootout. Uh, Ron Dennis informed us, informed, he said it would be a good idea to look at Mercedes DTM. There was a junior program there and uh, there was a shootout at Hockenheim and he thought I should do it. It wasn't a, you know, a normal path to Formula One, but at least DTM was very, very high tech. Uh, the way the engineers work, the cars were were difficult cars to drive. It would be, and uh, that was a way out of having a really bad season in Formula Three thousand. So I did that and ended up doing DTM for two years until the opportunity came with Stewart. How did you find Ron Dennis in those early meetings? Uh, very intimidating. I mean, he's, he's the most impressive guy I've ever met. The guy never compromised on anything. Uh, with me, there was a lot of pressure, but I never remember, you know, going into a meeting with him and liking that moment. <laughs> I was always, oh, what's going to happen? What's he going to say? You know, I knew it was, it was so much pressure, but it was so impressive. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody in the pit lane would say that Ron Dennis is likable. But he is, he was, so impressive. And what was your mindset at this time? After all that success in F3 the previous year, do you think, do you think it affected your outlook? Did it give you a full sense of what was achievable in motorsport thereafter? I think, I think all the success in F3 and how easy it came to me went against me in the following years. Because I didn't in F3, I didn't really have to try. It just came totally naturally, uh, and I think I wasn't. You know, that year didn't teach me how to fight. I won a lot, but it didn't really teach me how to fight for it, uh, and it came easy. I had a good team behind me, and everything clicked. Uh, I think it would have been more useful with eight victories but having to fight for it yeah. <laughs> so you, you learn more in defeat yes very much, much more when you win you win uh, and when you're young I don't think you know it takes a lot to learn from winning you really have to get so deep behind everything to see where you can improve because when you win you've won what's more to do I think it's an, for me it didn't really push me yeah. like I've for the, all of the rest of my career I've been pushing for it um, so but it's still I mean I wouldn't trade that season for anything but um, I think that, that was if anything negative to be said about that season that, that, that would be it that I didn't have to fight for it so you're testing for McLaren in 95 
just yeah. so happens to be one of the worst McLarens in the team's yeah. history. And ugly. And ugly as well, <laughs> you're right. It wasn't, really wasn't a pretty <laughs> car, was it? No, it wasn't. What was it like to drive? Uh, not not bad. It was the uh, first year of the Mercedes partnership. Uh, there was a lot happening. The car wasn't super great. I think Mika actually got some out of it sometimes, but uh, but it wasn't it wasn't great. So when uh, and plus I didn't do a lot of testing in it. Mika liked to drive and was testing the whole time, and so I did some testing. Uh, but I did a bunch of straight line testing as well in airports around somewhere you know but the uh, laps around the track wasn't a lot so i was really really underprepared at the end of 95 when mika had his appendicitis and i had to jump in well how much warning did you get well i was told sunday before i was told at hockenheim but at, at the last dtm race uh, ron came to me on the grid before jumping in the car and asked me if i could do a formula one race next weekend that was pretty much the lead up i got what happens next? You obviously do the race, but then yeah. how do you then prepare for your debut? You've got a week. Yeah, I've got a week. So I flew back to England. I was living in Woking, so I flew back Sunday night after the DTM race. Uh, Monday morning, I went to Silverstone. McLaren booked the track because I'd never made a start or a pit stop. So I uh, practiced that for, uh, for that morning. Went back, packed my bags and went back to Heathrow and flew to Japan. Uh, so that, that was sort of the lead up. <laughs> And at that time, I'd never done more than four laps in a row. Physically, what sort of condition were you in? I was pre pretty good because it was at the end of the year from in a DTM car, but it, it's not brutal G-forces or anything like that. But I did have some testing under my belt, but I was still nervous about my fitness level, especially my neck, how that's going to take. But the track, uh, Ida... It's like a go-kart track, wasn't it? Yeah, so, so there's not a huge amount of G-force loads. Uh, braking force was big, so, so I knew I was going to suffer. But I was in good enough shape to do the race, and uh, you know I was I was fine at the end of the race. I didn't have any any big problems with my, with my fitness. But that was a huge question mark when I went there, because I'd been testing at Barcelona or Estoril and places where there's really really high G loads. That's what you take with you all the way on the plane, thinking, oh man, this is going to be so tough. I'm not going to make it. But but it it, it turned out it was oh, it's not easy, but it was okay. And how pleased were you with how the weekend went? You qualified 12th, you finished 10th, just behind teammate Mark Blundell. Yeah, I was quite happy with it. I caught uh, Mark Blundell at the end of the race. I caught back up to him. We kind of finished nose, nose to tail, and I, I should have had a go. But it was outside the points. There was nothing. I felt I was being mature, saying, OK, I'm not going to ruin it for the team now. But of course, I should have had a go. And then had we crashed, we should have crashed. But yeah. But 10th, I'm happy with 10th. What did Ron say? Exactly that. Should have had a go. Did he say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. well, give me another go, Ron. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I thought, because next weekend was the Japanese Grand Prix. This was the Pacific Grand Prix or something. And then the weekend after in Suzuka was the Japanese Grand Prix. But Mika was back again, and, uh, and that was it for the year. Did you ever test alongside Mika Hakkinen? Yeah, we tested uh, not on the same programs, but the same days. Yeah. Uh, my very first test, well, that was a McLaren Peugeot, uh, was with Mika. But he crashed the car in the first, his car in the first day, so my, my two-day test was now a one-day test, because he took my car the day after. Do you remember Hakkinen being just amazingly quick yes. I mean I don't know how much data you had back then but were you looking at his data and going yeah, yeah. 
No, he's quick. Uh, and he was amazingly quick and, and knew what he was doing and he was he had a fantastic influence on the team I think and uh, how they worked around him and uh, this is all stuff I didn't see when I was there this is stuff I realized after but um, you know the, back then we had testing where it was Mika, Prost and myself Prost came back and helped McLaren did some testing and that I remember being super cool that's the coolest thing ever you know <laughs> I get to drive on the track at the same time as uh, Alan Prost. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the professor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So you retain links with Mercedes into 96, and yeah. you head to America, yeah. and you do some kart races for Penske Hogan. Yeah. Um, why did you make the move to the US? Uh, well, first of all, I was asked to. You know, there's an opportunity. Uh, there had been a huge crash at one of the super speedways where both uh, Paul Tracy and Emerson Fittipaldi had gotten injured. Emerson broke his back and Paul Tracy broke his neck. Uh, so I so was standing for one, I was stand in for one race at Marlboro Penske with, uh, in, in Tracy's car and then I did four races, the remaining races that year in uh, Emerson's car, the Hogan Penske. It was just an opportunity that came. I, I missed a DTM race because of it, but it was it was a Mercedes thing. It was a Ron thing. So Ron was still directing your career at this point. Yes, very much so. It was through him that this came. Him and Penske's partnership, and they, obviously they got Mercedes involved because I had to miss one or two races in DTM because of it. Did you worry that? the Formula One world might forget about you when, when you're on the other side of the pond? No. No, I didn't worry about that. But I did make a mistake, though, in when I went there that I did not pay enough respect to IndyCar because I was very verbal about this is just a stopgap. This is I'm not going to be doing this. I'm going to Formula One. And I think I hurt some people's feelings because in IndyCar... That's their world. There's nothing outside of that. Uh, I do think I messed up in my attitude towards... It's not, I love being there. The cars are amazing cars, super cool, fast, brutal. But I was verbal, too verbal about what my path was, and IndyCar was not one of them. Did you do an oval race? Uh, so I did an oval race later, but not that year. I did an oval okay. race in 99 for Patrick... And that was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. But but those 96 indie cars, I felt were peak. That was peak yeah. indie car for me. Massive power. Yeah. Brutal, big, heavy cars. Uh, much, in a sense, sort of um, much more physical than a Formula One car. When did you first make contact with Jackie Stewart about coming back to Formula One for 97? Oh, in uh, mid-96, I was contacted by Jackie. There had really been no contact since I left uh, the Formula 3 pro uh, 3000 program. Um, and mid-96, uh, mid I get a phone call from Bruce Jenkins saying that I need to call Jackie right now because I came up in, a, in, a, in an exciting conversation. And I thought, okay, so I didn't know what was going on. And then I called Jackie and... Uh, and he told me about the program and, uh, and asked me if there was an out in my McLaren contract. Uh, so obviously I went back to David Sears and talked to him about how, how do we do this. Uh, I, need to, I can't sign for Stewart until I'm out of the other deal. So I ended up calling Ron and telling him about the opportunity I had. 
he told me right off the bat that's the worst idea he ever heard of. Then he listed up why. A new team, inexperienced young driver, didn't have enough laps in a car. I was coming up against a young, super fast, experienced driver because I think Rubens, this was his fourth, that would be his fourth or fifth season in Formula One. Um, the Ford engines, there was many, many things that Ron sort of listed. He ended up, you know, hitting it on the nail on every point. But all I heard was that, but if you really want to do it, I'll let you go. All right, I want to do it. I gotta go. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing you came back to him and said, "Well, look, Ron, I'll stay at McLaren if there's an opportunity at McLaren." Well, that conversation we'd had earlier—I should have probably mentioned that—but that conversation had come up earlier because Coulthard was now there and Hakkinen was uh, was very, very much settled in that team, and I couldn't see Ron providing me with an opportunity at McLaren in the you know foreseeable future. So when I when I called Ron and and told him about this, it was no surprise to him that I wanted to do something. And what was your attitude to the the list of negatives that he'd given you about it being a one-car team and Ford engines not being great? To, to be honest, I totally put it aside because I didn't believe he was right. I thought, okay, I'm up against Rubens Barrichello, but I can beat him. I totally underestimated him. He was right about the lack of testing that I would have, the, how unprepared I would be. He did tell me about the Ford engines and some problems with those. Like I said, you know, he ended up being right on all counts. But it's a drive in Formula One. It's a drive. How do you? Know? It's a four-year deal in Formula One. How do you turn that down? Yeah, that that for, for me that was. I mean, uh, this I need to do this. There was no no other. Well, were there any other options for ninety seven? Yeah, so we talked with Jordan and we talked with Lichier. Uh, but the Stewart deal was the best. And how much of your decision to go to Stewart was based on the slightly romantic notion of recreating the success that you'd had together in Formula 3? 90, 90%. I said, okay. <laughs> We've done it before, we can do it again. Exactly, that was exactly my mindset. I couldn't have dreamt of a better opportunity for me back then. My mind was that this cannot go wrong. Let's talk about the car. How good was the car in that first year, 1997? The car was good in 97, but the engine was uh, it was unreliable. We were blowing up engines, firing them up in the garages. They were blowing up on track. There were so many, I forget, 50 blow-ups in, in, with testing and in racing. I think I was credited for four or five finishes, but I think I only crossed the finish line twice. You retired from 11 of the 17 races. How difficult is it as a young driver coming in just to understand what you're doing when you're spending so much time sat on the sidelines watching? Yeah. Like I said at the beginning, I was this I felt was still part of the plan that Jackie had set out for me. And uh, so relied way too much on, okay, this sucks. But it's obviously part of the plan. Uh, I don't know what I should have done differently in that situation. Um, if it blows up, it blows up. There's not much you can do. Um, but I didn't pay any attention to when it was running that Rubens was ahead of me. Uh, he would qualify better than me. And he would, you know, obviously, um, he scored points in the first season. He had a second at Monaco. I was seventh, which was a good result for me, but he was second, so my result doesn't count. 
did you feel that the team was focused towards him and not you? Yes, very much so. And but I didn't think it was weird. I didn't even it didn't even bother me because we could. I knew that we can get much more out of him at this point. I'll get there later. But at this point, early in the program, we need to listen to that guy. It was I listened to him. Did you have a good working relationship with Barrichello? Fantastic. Uh, I'm, uh, he was the he was the only friend I had in F1. Uh, in my time in F1, we had a great relationship as, t- as teammates. Uh, we worked well on the uh, on the track. We were still competitors, but we worked well on track and we hung out between races. When I left, what I was most sad about was that I wouldn't, you know, be hanging out with Rubens. And he was super quick, wasn't he? He was. I, I totally underestimated him. Uh, I think the world underestimated him. And then, but of course, well, he then goes and becomes Schumacher's teammate. Yeah, yeah, at and, Ferrari uh, and, and, and does well there. Yeah. No, it was. Uh, that, that's one of the the, the big things that uh, you know I'm, I learned from that. That's for sure. What about your relationship with Jackie Stewart at this point? Yeah, it took a turn for the worse because he was getting, I'm sure, a lot of pressure from Ford to try and uh, make something out of this because it wasn't good advertisement for Ford that they blew up the whole time. And But, it, I mean, it was obviously for a year two for 98, the engines were now quite good. Uh, but in year one, the, 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 the car was actually handling pretty well. It was a good car. They had lots of time to build it. Year two was the opposite. Now the engines were half decent, but the car was shit. Year one, there was another problem. 97 was another problem. Another situation where Bridgestone came in, and uh, there was now a tire war going on, so cars were a lot faster than in 96. Uh, so we were breaking parts, we were breaking uprights, we were you know, snapping uh, suspensions from, from the extra loads, and for some reason it was only my car that broke, and I had some really big accidents in the beginning of the year. Uh, How much did that knock you? At the time, I didn't think about it, but later on, I'm, I'm sure that it took some confidence out of me, not knowing, you know, is it, am I going to get out the other end of the corner? Um, especially one crash at Estoril where I got pinned in the car by one of the wishbones that got went through the back of my leg and out through the other side of the car. And so I got kind of, you know... What, through the muscle? So it went through the back of my leg here and took the suit out. And so I was jammed in the car, couldn't get out. And at that time, there was no medical people on the tracks, you know. I sat there until the team came in rental cars and found me out on track. And it was... Uh, so it didn't do a lot of... It didn't build confidence no, it can't uh, done, at it? all. <laughs> but, and, and you mentioned tyres, and of course, the whole sport switches from slicks to grooves for 1998. How did you adapt to that? Those tyres, I had a hard time getting my my head around. Um, it was generation one of those. those they, they weren't great. Did the car feel very unstable on them? Yeah. Now there was a lot of movement, which you, you need to try and interpret in the right way. They were still fast. It was still physical to drive and all that, but there was some, it was just weird with those tyres, and it, I took too long getting my head around it. But the engine was a bit better. 98 we started having gearbox issues they made a carbon fiber casing or something also didn't work <laughs> so that was early days Jan Magnussen is in sixth position so 
The Stewart team have got what they have worked so very hard for. Yeah, and you do score the only world championship point of your Formula One career in Canada in 98. how much of a relief was that? That was a huge relief because at that point I knew now this is not a good situation for me. And, and uh, you, you saw the writing on the wall prior begi- to that race. Yeah, but I wasn't super worried. When I did get a result, I, d- I did feel like now I've, I've done what I need to do. Uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm back in the, on the good side of things. Uh, but I did feel the pressure from Jackie. Jackie also took me to Alton Park in some Ford Escort and was trying to teach me how to drive. You got the driving lesson. Yeah, and and that was, I mean that 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 ruined more than anything else because it ruined my self confidence, whatever was left of the self confidence, because he was also being public about it, uh, and that was not. Uh, Rubens told me the other day that he did the same thing to Verstappen, so that's a kind of a, that kind of helps me a little bit. <laughs> but did he ever do it to Rubens? <laughs> Never to Rubens. I think Rubens was there that day, but it, but but he was just hanging out. But that, that, that was a horrible day. Everything about it was so wrong. Driving around Olden Park in a, in a four-wheel drive escort and, and, and him forcing you to drive like he wants you to drive and then comparing lap times. So it's like driving, you know, with your hands tied behind you. But you can't drive like you want to. And then he went, he was very public about the results of it. And, because, and, you know, and I was slower than him driving in a weird way. That... that, that yeah. It was, it, uh, so, so what happened after Canada? Uh, it was a week after Canada. I got the call. I only just really from him, g- from Jackie. From Jack, he called me up and he he was sorry. He was, you know, he, he was very verbal about this is not what he wanted to happen. This is not what he wished. But they were, you know, the way my performance had been, uh, even though it had gotten better. They, they were forced to make some, some hard choices and some changes. And uh, I was told, the way he said it was that there's a test next week. You won't be going for Stappens in the car. And I, I told, I was kind of confused. Where am I not, it's okay, I'm not doing the test board about, am I out? Completely out then. And then he said, yes, yeah, yeah, you are. And that, that was a hard, hard blow. And... Um, kind of you know it uprooted everything uh, my, at that point uh, that was my my whole life I was uh, living in Woking alone uh, so I went back packed my stuff up went back to Denmark uh, facing the music back there and uh, I remember the change from the the Danish press had been super supportive, but and now they turned. Now I was a big failure, and uh, all these things are bad, bad articles, front page stuff. Man, I hated all of it. So I kind of hid with a friend of mine, a girl, uh, who had a house outside of town, and I, I went out there, moved in. You know, felt sorry for myself on a couch somewhere for a few months, not knowing what I should do. Did you fall out of love with motorsport at that point? Yeah. Did you think about life beyond being a racing driver? Yeah, that's pretty. That was pretty much the way I was heading. Um, and uh, so I, did, I, I went to Hockenheim to do a Porsche Super Cup on the Formula One weekend. There was some Jackie set up. It was fun to do, but I hated being there. I hated everything about it. Uh, uh, but then uh, around October. David Sears calls me and tells me about this opportunity in America. 
with this. Uh, Dr. Don Panos that built a race car, and uh, he thought I should go and do it. So, uh, I, to be honest, I only did it because David told me. So I was just doing it because he was my manager, and he kind of told me to do it. So I wasn't looking forward to it, and sports cars had never entered my mind, and Le Mans was for old guys, and all the stuff you think as a young driver. Um, and I went out there, saw the car, which is a total beast. It looked like Front a Batmobile. Front engine beast. Yes, yeah, total yeah. beast. Was received, you know, the most American way, you know, open arms, part of the team, happy to be so happy that I was there. They were happy that I was there. Had a great test. The car was brutal. It was a monster. It sounded fantastic. There was flames coming out of it. And uh, uh, that night, you know, I made the decision that, man, this is what I'm going to do. So I did the deal that night with Don Panos for 99. Flew home, packed my bags, moved to America. And at this point, you turned your back on Formula One? 100%, completely. Even if you'd been offered a seat, do you think you would have taken it? I doubt, I, I doubt it. That, that's a, you know, a big if, but I doubt it. Did you continue watching the races? The rest of 98, I didn't watch any races. I was done, finished with it. Uh, and then, you know, life started again for me in America. And uh, when the 99 season started and the team was watching the races, so obviously I watched them with them, but there was no love for it. It was only, uh, at that time, I was so happy that I had another opportunity in America. And how tough was it for you, Jan, to look at that 99 season and see that Stewart had a good car? Of course, they, they won at Nürburgring with Johnny Herbert. Was that tough? Did you, did you find yourself thinking, I should be in that car? No. No, I never, never, never thought anything uh, like that. Uh, I was still happy to be out of it, and I was happy to be in America, surrounded by people that wanted the best, not only for me, but with me. They, they wanted to win with me. And that was, uh, it was so clear to me. Because up until then, I'd always, I'd lived a life where I felt like I was born to be a Formula One driver. But uh, America told me that I was born to be a racing driver. And that's two things. When you reflect on your Formula One career, what would you do differently now? I've had a chance to do that. I've had a chance to do just that with Kevin. Not that I could do it again, but my career did teach me a bunch of stuff uh, and it's not like I've been given Kevin a here's a book on how you what you should do and what you shouldn't shouldn't do it hasn't at all happened like that I've left Kevin alone as much as I could but uh, when I've had a chance when I could see situations develop maybe a little bit towards what was happening with me could be anything then, then I've told Kevin you know this is this is what I did, didn't work. This is what you should be doing. He hasn't at all done it my way, or not even the way I told him to do it. He's, he's done it his way, but, but, but I've had, I feel like I've had a chance to do it again with him, sort of watching from the side, giving him the advice that I could give him. Don't make the same mistakes I made. Yeah, but it's, yes, but not that direct. It's difficult, it's difficult to explain, but I've had a chance to talk to him about the situations. Uh, I've never given him a clear answer on things or a clear direction because I, I can't say that I was, I was ever 100% sure what would be the right way to do it, but I could tell him I did, I did it like this, and that didn't work. Then there's a whole other 
set of opportunities or ways to do it and pick one of those because this, this didn't work. <laughs> what impresses you the most about your son? What impresses me the most? As worried as I was with him joining McLaren under Ron Dennis. I have a sense of deja vu when uh, that was all. A little bit. I could yeah. feel for Kevin every time he had to go in a meeting with Ron and, and all that. Uh, it impressed me. Back then it impressed me how well he coped with Ron and how he found a, a way to exist in that. Because that's not a nice world. You'll go places, but it's not a nice world. <laughs> um, so when he got that podium in Australia... Yeah, that was. Uh, uh, How emotional did you get? I, I was. I was. I was in America. I wasn't at the race. I was in America. We just finished uh, twelve hours of Sebring, and I was watching it on television at midnight or whenever the hell it was in uh, in uh, at Sebring. And seeing that was unbelievable. Following the, the you know following the practice sessions and the qualifying, and he was up there near the front the whole time. You know, top six, eight whatever and then he qualified p4 or something which is phenomenal there's a weird drying qualifying and he nailed it and then uh, finishing the race third which was then converted into second later was unbelievable like crazy and but as a father sitting there i was it's not like i'm crying everything every time he does something special but uh, i can get emotional about it uh, it's uh I mean, it's fantastic to watch, and uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm so happy and relieved that that things went the way they did for him. I, I do think, looking back, you know, it would have been cooler if the podium for Kevin had come in in the last race of that year, <laughs> and not in the first. It's a bit like you in F3, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, because I'm sure Kevin thought, well, this is pretty easy. And then it got hard <laughs> immediately, um, but but that season did teach him a lot because I think the podium was like, okay now it needs to be podiums every time. Now anything out of the podium is a failure, and a, uh, and the only success was on the podium. But you know, looking back, they, you know, I think he missed out on a lot of opportunities because he he was distraught that the podium was not within reach, and then he kind of lost it a little bit from there. And of course, this was the first year of the turbo hybrids. Mercedes were dominating everything. So, yeah, completely unrealistic yeah. to think that it should have carried on. Yeah, but that's that's how it is. It's uh, it's that was still is, you know, motorsport history. It's uh, and in Denmark that was unbelievable. Have you seen a change in Kevin this year? I definitely sense a more relaxed. I hate this word, but almost more mature Kevin Magnussen this year than when he was in Formula One first time around yeah very much so uh, a lot of stuff has happened in his life he's also had a taste of life outside of formula one and uh, in america in sports cars where life's good it's fun it's cool cars you know great racing um, and i think that's what it, he needed to do that to just like i needed to 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 learn that there is a life there's life after formula one and uh, and he also learned that he's also just a racing driver <laughs> or you know not just a racing driver that's wrong but that he's a racing driver and that he enjoyed the sports car side of things and um, Formula One is fantastic it's also hard and it's frustrating and being you know at, in this end of the 
field. It's a lot of work for what can feel like nothing. It's a lot of work for nothing. Um, so when he came back into this situation, when Haas called him up or Gunther called him up and uh, gave him the opportunity, like a week before, him and I were having a conversation about what, because it was all happening with Nikita and all that. And, uh, you know, the question was brought up, what if? And he was like almost slapping his thighs. No, hell no, never again. Why? Then, That's interesting. Well, because he liked it in America. He had the Peugeot deal and, you know, things were going. He was married. He had a kid. Formula One, he was done. And then a week later, he calls me up and he says, oh, you're not going to believe us. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he was having, you know, it was, it was a long conversation about, man, I, got, I do have the Peugeot deal and I don't know what Luisa is going to say to travel. I kind of promised her not to, you know, it's be a different life and this and that. And he had a lot of good reasons why not to do it and at the end of it I, I i told him you know i'm really really proud of the how you're thinking about all of this but i'm pretty sure you're gonna do it anyway and he was like yeah yeah i'm gonna do it <laughs> so so that was cool one of the things he said that he absolutely loved doing in that hiatus between his formula one careers was racing with you at le mans yeah last year he said we had loads of problems yeah, sadly yeah. in the race but just to do Le Mans with the old man and he said the old man still got it <laughs> <laughs> he's a good kid <laughs> oh yeah that whole experience uh, how it came about with a strange opportunity and the backing from Denmark and all that it was a lot of work to, to do it but it was so clear to me that if there's ever going to be a chance for us to do this uh, at Le Mans, this is this is going to be the best the best opportunity. So, lots of hard work. We ended we end up starting to do some testing in Spain, and things are going fantastic, absolutely fantastic. So we had so high hopes. So obviously the result was shit. We had so many problems in the race, but the experience, the chance. I mean, I, I love that I get that chance to to see Kevin as a teammate and and go through data and comparing him and myself with with real data and we can see the two racing drivers and not father and son but two racing drivers comparing themselves to each other and and for the first time in my whole life you know there was no bullshit there was I didn't hold anything back he, I felt like he didn't held anything back it was just about making each other better to give us the best shot at Le Mans, and uh, and that experience was uh, one of the best in my in my life. Was that the biggest difference between having Kevin as a teammate and just another professional driver? Is that blood is thicker than water? I'm going to tell you absolutely straight what I'm thinking. As you say, no bullshit. Was that it? That was the main difference. That, that was that was the main difference because you would. I, I think all of us racing drivers. Uh, you know we're competitive people, and we if if we do find a little bit that we don't have to tell our teammates, then you don't. But still, even though you're a team, there's three drivers in the car, and they, you know you still like to be the fastest. So, but there was none of that there. It, it was uh, go on, go on, go on. Who was the fastest? Well, Kevin ended up being <laughs> fastest. It's kind of sucked a little bit, but <laughs> it was at the test we were very equal, um, uh, and uh, and, th and things were. That was cool. It's also for me, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a lot older than Kevin. <laughs> you know, to be able to keep up with him was that was one thing. But going in and looking in the data and finding out, okay, and I can do that and develop. I, I learned a lot, 
and I've, I've, I learned a lot from the way he works. It's totally different from my... Our racing educations are very different. Um, his is a better education. Um, but And that was all down to McLaren and the time he spent uh, spent there. But the way he works, you know, uh, I, I, I learned a lot. And But the big thing was, you, know, you go in there and you compare and you can see yourself. There's data of where we are alike and where we differ. And we're much, much more alike... Well, we are as much as like as I was hoping we would be. <laughs> and, of course, you're doing it all again at the end of the season yes. in Abu Dhabi. The Gulf 12 hours. Yeah, get another opportunity. Uh, Kevin called me a few months ago, well, three months ago, whenever. The Miami weekend called me up and said, hey, look, this is an opportunity. We can do a race together. Are you up for it? I'm like, hell yes. <laughs> I mean, when do we go? So uh, now we get an opportunity to race uh, with uh, MDK, a team, uh, Kevin's ambassador for an uh, American racing team. And then they, uh, they thought it'd be fun to, to see if they could set it up for him and I again. We have a test at the end of, uh, end of November in uh, Barcelona, and then, then we go. You're in a Ferrari. Can you go for outright victory in that car? Yes. Yeah, so it's 30, I, I think there's 35, 36 GT3 entries. And then there's some cup cars. I think it's 40 cars or 45 cars in total or something. But we, we can go for the outright. I think we're in the right equipment to go for it. But GT racing, this BOP, you never really know where you are until you, until you get there. But it, this is a fantastic opportunity. I think we, we're, we're going to be in with a shot. Ah, it sounds so much fun. But yeah. you are a man who has driven so many different cars in your career. I think Formula One, sports cars touring cars NASCARs yeah. even trucks yes truck racing I mean <laughs> you've done it all and had so much success outside of F1 which cars have you enjoyed the most well, the Formula 1 cars are absolutely way up there uh, I think if you ask most racing drivers that you ask that question they'll the answer will sort of tie in with a car they had a lot of success in because that's where the greatest emotions were but just from a pure driving sense, I mean, there was so much enjoyment driving the Formula One car. But even the NASCAR was, it's the other end of things. It's a horrible handling car, but it's got tons of power. There's so much soul, I think, in a, in a NASCAR. It doesn't handle well. It's just a big, brutal, weird. But there's also a big challenge to driving it correctly and getting the most out of it so that was fun and that was with Hendrick wasn't it yeah and you were doing you'd done a lot of road course testing for them yeah so, so you worked with Jeff Gordon all of them Jeff Gordon Jimmy Johnson Dale Earnhardt Jr and Mark Martin were God. my teammates the big guns <laughs> right <laughs> they were all my teammates yeah so, uh, oh, so yeah so I was, uh, there was a development program for the road course car and uh, at the end of it it was like a bonus you should do a race. That was a fantastic experience, but also one of the wildest races I've ever tried. Robin's racing, Jan. Oh, but that was more than rubbing. <laughs> that felt like a, a, like a three and a half hour bar fight <laughs> with people throwing furniture around. It was <laughs> nuts, absolutely crazy. And uh, I'd been warned that it was going to be like that. Uh, so I tried to stay below the radar for us. I wanted to survive for as long as possible. I didn't want to create any waves, so... I ended up finishing just outside top 10. That's good. You have just described that whole experience brilliantly because, of course, Kimi Raikkonen 
did his first yeah. NASCAR race the other day. Now I've, I'm thinking of him getting used to this bar fight. And it, and it, it, was, it was an amazing experience. But uh, sports cars, oh, I was, I've always been happy. You know, I've done sports cars for 24 years now. <laughs> I love that. I love the challenge that it brings. And uh, I love that it gives me opportunities like I'm going to have later on this year that I get to drive with Kevin again. And well, of course, because... Racing is the Magnussen family business, isn't it? Your dad uh, did a bit of bike racing and a few rallies. There's you, there's Kevin, there's your other son, Luca. Yeah, uh, he's going again. And, and so with it, with Luca, it was also, that was also Kevin kind of being a little bit hard with me and said, you know, you, I never really, I never pushed Kevin into anything. I supported as much as I could, but he was, for some reason, he was being pretty hard on me. You know, you don't, don't push Luca, you know, don't, don't. And so... So we just had fun with it, and then uh, it just kind of developed. And this year, suddenly, Luca got extremely good. So, and uh, but he gets to choose his path. But uh, I'm gonna be right there all the way. Uh, well, we're gonna. I think you're gonna be in the pit lane for an awful long time yet. I hope so. But uh, all he all he needs to know is that he calls the shots. But uh, if I need to sell the house again, I'll do it. <laughs> so. Judging by the look in your eye, you're not even joking. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I, I love this. It's, uh, yeah, it's my life. It's been my whole life. And uh, if Luca can have a great life, life as well, then, uh, then I'll support that. Well, Jan, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much Thank for your you. time. And I hope you've enjoyed reliving some of it. I do. I, I, I do love it. And I like the questions. And it makes me think about it and uh, makes me relearn some stuff. Nice. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. And Jan really would sell his house to help Luca get on his way. Such is his passion for motorsport and for his family. What a brilliant racing dad he must be. But there are so many take-home messages from this chat. First, I feel Jan's story highlights the many potential pitfalls for young drivers trying to make it in Formula One, especially when you have larger-than-life figures like Ron Dennis and Jackie Stewart making the big decisions. It's a really tough environment in which to excel. And Jan gave so much detail about his time at Stewart and the frustrations that came with it. And what about his description of racing in NASCAR? It's like a bar brawl with furniture being thrown around. Just brilliant. Jan, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and best of luck in the Gulf 12 Hours with Kevin in December. As ever, please send in your thoughts and stories on Jan. Did you see him race? How much did you rate him? Let me know at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and I'll read out some of your thoughts and stories at the end of next week's show. Which of course segues into what you sent in after last week with Nick De Vries, Holland's newest F1 racer. What a star Nick is and you guys all seem to recognise that. Let's start with this from Trevor Thompson. I think the slower path to Formula One has added a maturity to Nick that will be a big asset next year. My memory is that Abu Dhabi 2019, joining in with the Dutch fans doing a dance from the Yas Marina pits after he won the F2 championship. He'll have plenty of support and he really deserves his chance in Formula One. Well, I agree with you, Trevor. He comes across as really mature and that will help him navigate this crazy world of Formula One. 
Next, let's hear the thoughts of the Formation Chat podcast. Love this episode, they say, particularly hearing about how he's his own manager. I was at Monza earlier this year and it was so exciting to see Nick on his debut. We were rooting for him to get an F1 seat and were sure that after that amazing race, he'd do it. And you were right, guys. It was a truly great debut. One of the highlights of the season for me. And thank you very much for getting in touch. Finally, let's go to Steve. Wow, he says, great episode with Nick DeVries. What an easygoing, no airs and graces kind of guy. I loved hearing about his experiences both inside and outside the Formula One paddock, and I'm glad his father has been fully behind him throughout. Good luck in 2023 and beyond. Well, thanks for the note, Steve. And one of the highlights of that conversation with Nick was indeed him talking about the journey that he's been on with his father. So much passion flows between them. It's just lovely. Well, we'll leave it there for messages this week. And thank you to everyone who got in touch. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Jan Magnussen in time for next week's show. If you've got time to listen to something else, why not make it a Magnuson double bill? I had a brilliant chat with Kevin earlier this season in which he explained why he had no fear when making his Formula One comeback. And it makes for a really interesting listen now that we've heard his dad's story. There's a link to it in the description for this episode. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a rating or a review and follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.